Good morning. Over the past few weeks, we've been moving through uh, Titus chapter 2, and we've been discussing what a healthy church filled with healthy people looks like. In this chapter, Paul has primarily been focusing on how the church interacts with the church. And now as we move into chapter 3, we're going to be looking at how a a, a grace-trained, grace-filled people who are agents of grace are to interact with the rest of the world. And he's going to give us three helpful points. Uh, So for note-takers, here are the three points. The first one is that agents of grace ought to speak boldly. The second point is that agents of grace ought to behave graciously. And the third one is that agents of grace ought to live humbly, humble lives. So with that in mind, let's read Titus here, chapter 2, 15 through 3, 3, together. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, would you open our ears to hear and see something new, to see Jesus Christ to see him lifted high, and to see grace, to see our sin, and to cling to the cross. Lord, we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. George Burns, who's a long career radio comedian, film actor, he reached the age of 85, and he famously said this. He said, I was always taught to respect my elders, and now I've reached the age when I don't have anybody left to respect. We have some reason to believe here from Titus 1.4, where Paul calls Titus his son or his true child in the faith, that perhaps Titus has the opposite problem here of George. He's, not, he's probably a little bit older than Timothy, not as old as Paul, and he has been tasked with leading the church at Crete, which we have seen is filled with unruly people, troublesome people, sinful people. He has to lead them. He has to establish elders on the Isle of Crete. This could be possibly why Paul in 2.15 says, Let no one disregard you. You'll remember that Paul had started chapter 2 by instructing Titus to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And now he's coming full circle to continue this command, 2.15. He says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. It's important to note that this command is directly, specifically towards Titus, towards his elders, and it's also towards biblically ordained pastors. However, there's an application for all of us as agents of grace, as people who have been trained in grace to go forth, to evangelize, to spread the message of the gospel. Notice two specific commands here in the text. First, Paul says this. He says, declare these things. Now we have to ask, of course, what things? And just a quick recap, we've been going through chapter 2 and he says this. He says, teach sound doctrine. He says, instruct older men and women to be reverent, sober-minded, dignified. Let Let them help the younger women. Let them help the younger men. He wants young women to be led by the older women. He wants them to seek to love their husbands, to to maintain a healthy household. He wants the young men to be self-controlled. He wants them to be models of good works. 
He wants them to, he urges the bondservants to be submissive. He reads, he reminds the entire lot of them of the gospel of grace of God, which trains us, which trains his people to renounce God ungodliness and to follow Christ's example. So that's the things. What, what are the things he's supposed to remember? All of that. All of that. Keep reminding them of these things. Keep teaching them these things. These are the things Titus is to teach. These are the things that we, as ministers of the gospel, ordained pastors, are to continue teaching as well. There was a Pew Research uh, study. Always, I'm always intrigued by these. I never trust them fully, but they're always interesting. Uh, back in 2014, it was called the Religious Landscape Study. And in it, various American adults from all sorts of different denominations were asked if abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Now, the top three are not surprising. It's Unitarian Universalist, uh, Jewish, Atheist, 90%, 87%, 87%. It's not surprising. And I looked on the list, and sure enough, there we were. PCA. And we sat at 54% back in 2014. The Jehovah's Witnesses shamed us. 18% of them. 18%. Now, I pray that these numbers have uh, diminished since 2014. And I think they probably have. But I fear that a big reason for those percentages being so high in the first place can be directly tied back to the pulpit of each one of those denominations. Because pastors are called to declare with boldness, in season, out of season, the entire counsel of God. Not just with regards to abortion, but all hot, hot button issues. We're to declare the truth of God's word And Christian, you too are called to be bold as you declare God's truth as well in your life, to your your co-workers, your friends, your family. You're called to be bold. Now, I'm not calling you, it doesn't mean be a jerk, okay? What it means is that you're called to plead with tenderness and gentleness and earnestness. You're supposed to speak passionately about the things of God because these are important issues. Second thing he says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Exhort is sort of a funny uh, word. You know, not a lot of us walk around and be like, oh, I'm exhorting that person right now. Um, it just means to strongly encourage. Pastors are constantly to encourage the flock. They're to exhort the flock. They're to, to, to encourage them, lift them up each week. When I uh, was growing up, I did musicals, I did plays. And whenever you got a character, we'd, we'd ask ourselves this funny thing. We'd laugh about it and we'd say, what's my motivation? What is my character's motivation? But the question for for us as Christians is, what is our motivation? What is our motivation to exhort? What is it to rebuke? What is it to go out and share the gospel? What is our encouragement to speak and obey, listen, and to love one another? For my kids, when it comes to potty training, my wife and I exhort them with M&Ms. We encourage them to obedience with M&Ms. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. He says, Paul, he says, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so we are encouraged. Our exhortation, our our compelling is motivated by Christ's love. You will never want to do any of this if you are not first motivated by Christ's love for you, by his grace, by what he's done for you on the cross. 
And so every single week when you come through those doors, you better expect to hear the gospel message over again. Because we need to remind you of it. Because I forgot it. Because I'll walk back through those doors and I'll be like, God loves me. God loves me. I need to hear that again. I need to hear that Jesus died for my sin because I screwed up the last week. Because your sin is buried in the grave, because he died for you, you are now free to live a life of joyful, loving obedience. You're free from guilt and fear. You can be right with God. That's the positive side. The pastors are also called to the negative side, and that's rebuking. And rebuking here just means to express sharp disapproval. It's a criticism of some behavior or action that you know you should not do. I confess that, again, as a parent, I am quick to rebuke. I, I am often, it's often easier to, to rebuke than it is to exhort. And that's because of my heart. It's because my sinful heart is quick to find fault and it's slow to find the merit of my children. It's slow to find the merit in others. It's slow, but it's so easy to critique. Isn't it? It's so easy. However, we should be quick as Christians, as believers, to accept a good report and be slow to rebuke and receive a bad one. I spoke a couple weeks ago about self-discipline, and I talked about how if all of us as believers were practicing self-discipline in our lives, there would be, there'd be really no reason for formal church discipline or for pastors to rebuke us as much as they could. And so the call as believers is that if your brother or sister is in sin, you are to rebuke them in love. If your brother or sister wrongs you, speak boldly to them. Go to them. Go personally. How many problems in the church could be simply solved if I walked up and said, Hey, did you mean what you said to me the other day? Did you mean that? And they would say, I'm so sorry you took it that way. I'm so sorry. Or I could just bottle that up. And hold a grudge against that person for five years. <laughs> it's so much easier to go and say, did you mean that? That hurt me. Can we work past that? Can we, can we love each other and move forward? Speak boldly. Encourage one another. Rebuke in love. Paul adds at the last little bit there. He says, with authority, which is again directed at Titus and his elders. Uh, pastors are men who are ordained by God to the service of the church. They've been called to ministry by the Holy Spirit. They have no authority on their own except the authority that God has granted them through the preaching of his word. They stand under God's authority and they have to give an account for our souls. That's what the Bible says. One day they will have to give an account for our souls. So when an ordained minister comes to you and he exhorts you or he rebukes you and he's doing it based on God's word, you better believe all of heaven is backing him up. And so when they do that, we need to be humble, we need to listen, and we need to be faithful to these elders who lovingly rebuke us, exhort us, correct us, they love us. Moving on to Titus 3, 1 through 2, it says this, Remind them to be submissive to elders, I mean, sorry, to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. As agents of God's grace, we are to behave graciously. Now, I know that's probably blew, blew your mind right there. We're to, be, we're to be gracious people. We're to be submissive and humble in our demeanors. Paul here presents us with two spheres of public life in which this falls under. So the first one is a government or authority figures, your boss, right? Anybody who's over you, that, that's one sphere. And the other sphere, I love Paul says, all people. 
So government, authority, and then, oh, and then all people. Everyone else, your neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? All people. During the life of the early church, the Romans viewed Christianity as just another sect of Judaism, and they called it the way. And the, Jude, the Ju- Jewish people did not like this very much, and so they went to their Roman authorities and they said, we've got some issues, we've got some issues with these people. These, these people are, are not worshiping Roman gods. They're atheists. They're atheists. They're not worshiping Roman gods. Well, that was issue number one. The second thing is they said, did you know that they're eating the Lord's flesh and they're drinking his blood? They're cannibals. And so the Romans did not like this. And, and so the Roman, the governing authorities were always, we were always on guard, right? That's why there were 10 waves of persecution for the early church. And so with the governing authorities, there had to be a willingness to do the right thing, which was the best way to put these rumors to rest. Christians thought, if we can prove to them, if we can show them that we're not what those people are saying they are, that's the best way to, to squelch out a rumor. Peter probably had the same idea in mind in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, when he says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you go to Romans 13, 1, this is the classic go-to chapter when we talk about authorities or how a Christian is to uh, be obedient to, the, to civil uh, you know, government. And it says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I'm not sure if you know this. I talked about this a while back. but We're in, we're in the middle of an election year, and it's going to be a very nasty election year. And so I want to encourage all of us today to just remain calm. <laughs> just remain calm. Because Americans are going to threaten to move to Canada. They're going to uh, predict doomsday is just around the corner. They're going to shed many tears over these, over these next few months. But Christians should be utterly unmoved by all of this. God's in control, so we should pay our taxes. We should vote, we should pray and respect our leaders, and we should live such godly lives to put to shame all those who hate us. As we are the anchors in Jesus Christ, as the world panics and freaks out, we should be completely calm. Right? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He has it all figured out. Moving quickly now through the key words that Paul gives us here. These are going to instruct us as to how agents of grace are to behave towards government, towards all people, towards authority, etc. The first two words here, the buzzwords, are submission and obedience. Back in the 11th century, there was a German monarch named Henry III, not uh, the eighth, right? This one was a good, pretty good one. And he became tired of his responsibilities and the worldliness of the court. So he went to um, the abbey and he decided to become a monk. So he went to the prior and he said, here's what I want to do. I want to become a monk. I want to, I'm done with being king. This is awful. It's horrible. I don't want to do it. Your majesty, the prior explained. Do you understand that the pledge here is one of total obedience? This will be hard since you have been a king. King Henry was undaunted and he replied, I understand the rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads. Then I will tell you what to do, the prior said. Go back to your throne, serve faithfully in the place where God has placed you. Henry did as he was told, and after he died, there was an epitaph that said, The king learned to rule by being obedient. And you see, the same is true for us as believers, as we seek to honor God where he has placed us. 
There are so many times in our lives where we think, well, the Lord just needs to put me over here, or if I can just go over there, I'll, I'll be really useful. You know, if I can just get pulled out of the world and do this and that. And, and the Lord has placed you in a specific place. He's placed you where he needs you. And so we're called to be obedient and submissive to him and ultimately to the authorities he's placed us under. And so, yes, this world is filled with sin and evil and corrupt governments. And despite this, Christians are called to obedience. Paul says in 3.1, to be ready for every good work. So as we're in these places where God has called us of submission and humble obedience, we are called to do good work in those places. Now, some people think this is some sort of like social work or civil work. But I think it's just talking about all facets of life, all work. Just, just be ready for good work wherever God has placed you. This could be volunteering at a charity. It could be running for public office. It could be helping out your neighbor. It could simply be not being a nuisance to society. To be a blessing rather than a curse. God has called us to good work. He's called us to lead godly lives. Christians should be active in their communities, in their neighborhoods. The ideal is that a church would be planted in a neighborhood and then that neighborhood would be radically transformed by the gospel. We are agents of grace. We're sent out into the world to, to gather the elect, to train them in righteousness, to call the world to repent and believe we are fishers of men. Now just to clarify very quickly, Christians are also have a right to civil disobedience. Okay, So if somebody comes to you and says, I don't like that gospel stuff, Cut that out. Quit preaching that gospel stuff. You're going to say, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I can't do that. And if they threaten you with jail, all of Christianity is filled. The history of Christianity is filled with people who said, okay, I'll take jail. Okay, I'll take death. Because the gospel is too important. It's more important than my own life. They compared it joy to go to their deaths for God. Uh, this has not happened yet in our in our country, but it's happening all over the world. You heard Ron pray for our brothers and sisters overseas. You know what's happening in China. You know how people are put in prisons and are killed for their faith. So let us remember to pray for them. Next, Paul says to, we are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Now this one is hard. This one's hard because, as I said, easier. it's easier for me to find fault than merit. If you, look, if you go to James 3, which is the famous tongue, taming the tongue chapter, and you replace the word tongue with the word keyboard, you might be a little more convicted. Because I rarely speak evil of people, but I often type evil of people. <laughs> I tend to extremely be, I tend to be extremely easygoing unless you put me behind a keyboard and some you know, smart aleck is going to get on to me about something. Now I'm going to go back and forth a little bit. That's where I'm convicted. Again, this year will provide many opportunities, both good and ill, to use our tongues for good, to use our keyboards for good, to love each other, to serve each other, because we are compelled by Christ to avoid quarreling with others. Finishing up verse 2, Paul says this, he says, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. A quarrelsome individual who is quick to pick a fight. Have you ever met somebody like that? Somebody who's quick to pick a fight, who always goes for the wrong, always finds the wrong. Those people are poor, poor examples of an agent of grace. What an agent of grace should look like. We should be quick instead to pass over transgressions. Quick to turn the other cheek. In a world full of coarse words, ours should be gentle. In a world full of crude talk, ours should be polite 
and courteous. People will notice, I promise you. When I go out in public and, and somebody you know, is talking to me and they're using coarse language or crude talk, and eventually we get to the point where they go, what do you do for a living? And I go, well, I work at a church. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a 180, and they, be, they start speaking in old English to me, you know. Thou must forgivest me for mine error. It's inauthentic. It's inauthentic. It's fine for the world, but it cannot be in the same way for believers. We should lead such godly lives, such authenticity, that we are the same person we are here as we are out there. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind. We need to have peace. We should stick out like sore thumbs. So that when somebody finds out that we're a Christian, they go, oh, 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 okay. And we go, it's okay. Can I talk to you about that? Can we, can we, you know, we just radically transform the way they view us, the way they think about Christians. Finally, Paul is going to remind us why. Why should we do all this? Why are we to speak and act differently from the world? Verse 3, 3-3. Three, three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This reminder of the way we used to live should cause us, as agents of grace sent out into the world, to live humble, obedient lives since that was us. Since we have moved from death to life We were once far off, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were once strangers and enemies of God, but now we are sons and daughters. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of us. God's grace is greater than all our sin. His wisdom exposed our foolishness. His loving patience rebuked our disobedience. We were lost, but he found us. We were led astray, but the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Passions and pleasures, that's all changed. We are new creations. Our days of malice and envy have been replaced with benevolence and generosity. We were hated by others. We hated one another. And God said, no, now you love God, and now you love others. This grace and love of God, we're told, is deep and wide and long and high. And it surpasses all knowledge and all human understanding. You could not earn it. You did not work for it. But God, out of the mere good pleasure of his will, freely gave it to you through the gift of his son. You may ask at this point what it is you did to deserve God's unmerited Pleasure, his favor, his love, his grace. What did you do? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. You did nothing. You may ask when the exact moment was, what action you took, what was it, when was it, when did God start loving me? And the Bible says, oh, it was back in eternity past. It was back in eternity past when God, through love, predestined you to be called his child based on nothing you would do. You may ask how this could be. How could it be that God would love a sinner like us? And the answer is only through the alien righteousness of Christ imputed to you. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works so that nobody can boast. 
When you understand this, when you truly grasp the gospel, when you grasp the message, it transforms your entire life. It transforms every aspect of your life. This is why I, I love Reformed theology so much, because it puts such an emphasis on holiness, God's holiness. It puts so much emphasis on God's sovereignty. And when you come to the realization, as Jonathan Edwards did, that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that required it, that made it necessary, it shatters your pride. It just demolishes your pride. You have, you have nothing. You bring nothing to the table. This gives you a confidence, a boldness to live freely. There's a story by the great theologian B.B. Warfield. He was in America. He was walking about, and he was struck by a young man who was walking by him. This man had confidence. This young man just, just seemed to, to give off some sort of... You ever met somebody like this where you just, you're struck by their beauty or the way they look or some, the way they carry themselves? And B.B. Warfield was so enamored by this young man, he, he looked at me and said, Young lad! And the boy turned around and he said, What is the chief end of man? And the boy said, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And B.B. Warfield pointed at him and said, I just knew you were a Westminster Confession boy. <laughs> it's a true story. And it's because grace changes you. Changes the way you act, changes the way you hold yourself, it changes the way you interact with others. There's a band I love called Paxico via Mexico, and one of their lyrics says this it says, The difference between a slave and a son is shackles fastened and undone. I'm running. And grace causes you to run, it causes you to get off the treadmill of works because there's no finish line on that treadmill, there's no metal on that treadmill because Christ already won the race. The Christian life is not about record keeping or bookkeeping. It's about resurrection. Christ has done it. It's finished. Jesus paid it all. Hebrews 8.12 I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. This does not mean he passes over our sins. It means he remembers them no more because he paid for them. The debt is paid. The bank account is full. Now go live in that freedom. That Jesus has purchased for us. You can't, you can never out God's grace, but that doesn't mean you should try, right? Paul says, does this mean that we should sin all the more because God's grace is so good that sin may, that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. Instead, that unmerited free grace should compel us to live these godly lives that I've been talking about. As agents of grace, we seek to declare, exhort, and rebuke only because Christ first declared us as his. Only because he encouraged us through his word first. And only because he rebuked us as his children. As agents of grace, we only seek to obey, submit, and behave because Christ's model of obedience, submission, and perfect behavior set the race for us. The Holy Spirit now sanctifies us and shapes us into his image. And we're compelled to love others. And finally, as agents of grace, we are to live humbly because we know that there for the grace of God go all of us. We who have been called, we've been adopted by the King for no other reason than He loved us. This should cause us to have endless compassion and love and joy for one another as we walk about our daily lives, as we go about our daily lives. We were lost, we've been found. If you're, if you're a lost sheep today, then I pray that God will call you home. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. 
white as snow, though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Turn to Christ and believe today. Don't waste another minute of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the grace that is greater than all our sins. Thank you that you loved us before the foundation of the world, that you predestined us in love, Lord. Help us to live as agents of grace, people who declare and exhort, who rebuke one another in love, Lord, who live humble lives, who who live such godly lives, Lord, that we put the haters to shame and that they would turn to Christ and say, I want to know what those Christians have. I want to know what they have in Jesus Christ, Lord. We love you so much. Thank you for this day. Thank you for a time to rest and relax and to come together as brothers and sisters to be replenished through your word. We pray all this in your matchless name. Amen.